Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Andre Chris. Andre has worked in service to the LGBTQ community for 20 years. He's currently the Deputy Director for Griot Circle and the Site Manager for the partnership between Griot Circle and SAGE USA. Griot Circle stands for Gay Reunion in Our Time. It was founded as an informal gathering of elders and was officially recognized as a nonprofit in 1996. Griot Circle remains the only organization exclusively dedicated to serving the needs of elder LGBTQ people of color. As a director, he helps develop and guide wellness programs designed for LGBTQ elders of color for the betterment of their lives as they age, as well as developing communication strategies to funding agencies and the health community at large. Andre helped create and design Still Standing, an interactive presentation in which older adults discuss living with HIV. This is a community-wide program and was recently conducted in additional states, including New Jersey and California. He also helped create Joy of Intimacy, a program similar to Still Standing that provides an older adult female perspective of living with HIV. In a blog post in Paz Magazine titled Laughing at My Status, Guess, who is a long-term survivor, shared how humor helps him live with HIV and argues that laughter can help others as well. Andre has a Bachelor of Science degree from New York University in Media Studies as well as a Master's of Science in Public Relations and Corporate Communications. In addition to completing his studies, Andre is a contributing writer for the Huffington Post and a regular featured writer for Paz Magazine. He has sat on the Grant Review Committee for Philanthro Fund and has served five terms on the board for HCCI, a Haitian HIV-focused agency located in Brooklyn. For five years, he guided the theater company Flavor Cabaret. As a writer and actor, Andre has acted in several productions. His last work was a one-man play called Naked, a lens on what it means to be black, gay, and a man. Andre, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me, and um, happy holidays. Uh, uh, definitely great to speak to you again. Well, it's great to speak to you. I mean... I like how, you know, many times, and in fact, I was talking to people, like often those of us in the LGBT community, like we lament the loss yeah. of family. We lament, you know, we talk about a sense and almost like victimizing ourselves. But I like how in your blog post, you talk about laughing at your status and how humor has helped you live with HIV and argues how it can help with others. And then you've done so much work around it. So it's like not only have you survived and are you living with it, but you're you're thriving and helping others. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it definitely 
was a long journey to find that place, but it's, you know, for those who are newly affected, you know, I hope that they can understand that you will get to that place where you take back that power that HIV has over your life. And I think for me, that's, I've, I've reached that point of taking back that power and empowering myself to definitely share my story uh, for others to hear. Mm-hmm. And it's like you've done this, like, I mean, and we're going to get to your work with Creole Circle, but you've been an actor, you yeah. write. I mean, you've done, you've got all these creative parts of you. How did this working and looking through your status and living with it, how did that impact your ability to write? And, and how did you, I mean, because I'm going to tell you, it's very courageous to, to talk about your life, particularly yeah. the things that are a struggle. How did, the, how did that work together, you know, living with but also being able to write and share not only through Post and the Huffington Post and Paz, mm-hmm. but as a performance artist? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I mean, that's, first of all, I'll say that's the Aries in me. We're everywhere. <laughs> if you know Aries, we're we're creative, and we always got our hands in something. <laughs> but, uh, but I think, for, but for my for me, uh, I've always it, it's interesting that even as young, when I was real young, I've always turned to the arts. Um, I talk about being a survivor of sexual abuse. And when I was a young person struggling with that, that was like my secret that I held inside. And even to find my escape from that, I turned to poetry. So that was kind of like my first kind of um, use of creativity to like kind of work my way through the storm. Um, and so as I was growing old, getting older, um, you know, in my teens and early, um, you know, in my 20s, I, I was still struggling with my identity stigma of uh, being HIV positive as I was a, because I was exposed to it in my late teens. Um, it was learning that I knew that I had a voice inside, but it was it was it was kept quiet and it was shuttered by society and even by myself. And you know, speaking of creativity, um, naked the play that I wrote that mm-hmm. was my first unveiling of who I was. Uh, that was the first time that I got on stage and and said, hey, I'm not only am I black, not only am I gay, but I'm also a man. But it was even my journey of trying to identify what it meant to be black, what it meant to be gay, and what it meant to be a man. Um, and, you know, in the play itself, I do get naked at the end. And you know, for me, that was kind of the unveiling moment for me because even at the end when I'm getting naked, the naked represents the fact that I'm taking, I'm stripping myself of all the things that society says I should be and what I should do, and I'm getting naked so I can see the true me because only by seeing the true me can I start to move forward. And so that was kind of my, what made me really start, you know, telling my truths uh, by getting naked like that. Um, and that led me into then sharing my uh, my HIV status because up until then, mm-hmm. you know, I, I shared that I was a gay black man, but I didn't share that I had HIV based on the mm-hmm. extreme stigma. But by doing that um, and by even writing my story, I started writing a blog. Um, it was a Google uh, site called Blogger. And I, I just started sharing my story. Uh, it was called 20 Plus. 
uh, which back that time was talking about living with HIV 20 years. And uh, mm-hmm. that was kind of my, my exposure where I was, I was putting it out there. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a uh, it was scary because once you hit that send button, you don't know how people are going to take it, how people are going to react. You don't you know you're thinking about family, you're thinking about friends and all that stuff. And surprisingly, the one thing that really once once I once I hit that send button is that I started hearing other people's stories, and I started realizing that my story wasn't just my story that there was other people who were also going through, you know, past uh, child abuse, people who were also, you know, struggling with their identity, people who were living with HIV and didn't know what this thing meant. So that kind of empowered me to tell more of my truths and to put more of myself out there, recognizing that by doing so, although it was putting a shine or light on me, but it was also, you know, bringing people together, um, just by me being honest of who I was. So, yeah, that's, you know, so, and I tapped into that by using my creative background mm-hmm. um, where, you know, it, you know, it helped, like I said, helping me through the storm. If I didn't have that creativity, I don't know what I would have done. But that, oh, yeah. that yeah. You know, it's funny because I think that that's how, I mean, I know that I started, like, in creativity through poetry, and doing that and, and that needing to just talk about who you are. And, you know, when we talk about intersectionality, like and people often think about they want to do it, but you are, like you said, you're black, you're gay, you're a man, you're also HIV positive. And each one of those has a stigma, uh, oh, yeah. a thing that you have to stand. It's like you really have to stand up. And I know how it can feel almost like you're putting – a target on your back, but how important it is to say that I'm all of these. You know, being a man doesn't mean that you've turned in your black card. Being yep. gay doesn't mean that you turned in being your your heteronormative male card. Yep. You know, you're still a yep. man. You're a cis man. I mean, and being HIV positive didn't mean that you're you're wearing this mantle of being sick, that you're your mantle of being wellness. You're not throwing yep. in all of these. And how do you feel sometimes that how important is it that you, that you stand in that spotlight of all these things? It, I, for me, it's a real importance because it's a juggling act. I mean, or I used to feel like a juggling act uh-huh. um, because, you know, in each of those areas that you, you said, there's certain stigmas that come your way. Um, I mean, but I know definitely for me, my greatest truth is realizing, you know, that when I walk out the door, you know, people see the man, but then they also see the blackness. And Mm. regardless if I have HIV or what, that's how society treats me. Mm. Um, And for me, I realized that it's a luxury for me to, it would be a luxury for me to only focus on my, on my HIV positive, my HIV status but that I continually have to focus on all these other aspects of who I am. Um, and, and it's still, it's, and for me, it's also continuation. It's a continual, it's like you're reading this, this great long novel that never ends because mm-hmm. that's definitely, I would say that's my life of still, you know, uh, finding out, finding little areas of, of each segment of being a man, being gay, being black, being HIV positive, 
you know, being a man when I was young was like, you know, learning what it meant to be a young man. <clears throat> and then, you know, learning what it meant to be a man in my 20s, 30s. And now they get older, learning what it means mm. to be an older man. Mm. But even with HIV positive, you, you even look at that where I've moved from learning what it means to have HIV now what it means to be live with HIV as an older adult. So there's still those little um, segments that I'm still learning. And through that, I, I, I think by my sharing, hopefully it resonates not only with me but with others. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and because I know that like, your work with Creole Circus often with, with, is mostly with elders. But, you know, yeah. you've lived, you know, you've been doing this work for 20 years. You've lived with mm-hmm. HIV. And we, were, and we talked briefly about, you know, how, I mean, I can remember, you know, wondering was I going to make it to 30, okay? okay. And, when you're, and, when, and when you're at that age, you know, yeah. you're living in the moment. And also we know that many people, when they got, it used to be when you get the diagnosis of HIV, well, it was oh, yeah. just, you know, it was like, well, live for tomorrow because, you know, tomorrow yep. is right around the corner. But here you, yep. you've been able to live through that and look back. And as you, you see and you interact with young LGBTQ people, young African-Americans who are dealing with HIV, and now, you know, I was watching this commercial, and it was about PrEP, and it was like, hey, I'm going to mm. live my life. But, you know, and it, and it was all mostly still very young people. But there's a group of people now who have lived longer. Do you find that it's important that you stand stand in that truth with young people and sort of say, look, you know what? Yeah, be safe, live for today. But with all of this this freedom that comes from PrEP, with all this this hope that, you know, one day you're going to be me. (laughs) One day you're going to be me. And you need to think long term. Yeah, it is. I mean, because, you know, I'm glad you said that because, yeah, when I first got diagnosed, I literally, it was right around, actually right around Thanksgiving. I'll never forget it. And um, I literally thought that the coming New Year's, that was going to be my last New Year celebrating. But then all of a sudden, I, uh, you know, the next new came year came, the next year came. And so I was like, wow, I'm still here. And I think mm-hmm. for a lot of folks, even for young people, you know, young people in general, I think whether you're HIV or not, I think young people in general sometimes <laughs> – they they uh, they don't really realize that you know there are their lives is gonna like I wanted to say that what am I trying to say? Because sometimes when you're young, you think that oh I'm gonna live forever, <laughs> you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that you know. But when you get HIV positive, for me, if when I encounter a young HIV positive person, I think it's real important that that they find that hope that they don't realize that they've been that they don't think that they've been handed a death sentence because it's not. I mean, it's definitely far removed from them days in the 80s when it, it seemed like it was that once you got HIV or AIDS, you know, mm-hmm. you, you transition. But for a lot of young folks, if anything, what I always try to do is to have, you know, instill that hope of, you know, don't give up. That although, you know, you your journey feels like it's just beginning, if anything, it's just, you know, you've just, uh, started a new chapter in your life, a new chapter where you're going to have many more chapters. And this is just one that, you know, once you get through it, you'll see, the, you know, the happiness on the other side. Of it. And even for young people, you know, especially those who are newly diagnosed, and especially even for me, it's even a balance of not, not, not using my, my, my elder, 
you know, experience of saying, hey, if I could do it, you can do it. Because that's the one thing I don't want to do is, you know, try to have them mirror me because everybody mm-hmm. has a different story. But definitely hear them from where they're coming from. But then also say that, hey, you know what, um, there's still life. And as long as you're still breathing, you know, you're still standing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's so it's real important because sometimes, I won't lie, some of us long-term survivors like me, we get real cynical. <laughs> Uh-huh. You know, we get like, you know, I remember way back then when we only had one pill and, you know, you guys are complaining about today. But um, so we can't use that. We can't be cynical because then you won't be able to have that conversation with younger people. And and mm-hmm. it's true. Like you said, they do also have PrEP. And PrEP is a great alternative and it's something that, you know, has come along that opened a, a door that people thought that was closed forever. Um, but I think whether it's prep or anything, you still have to use common sense, mm-hmm. you know, because prep, um, as great as it is, it's it's mainly for HIV. But you have to remember there's other there's other acronyms that are out there that prep won't stop. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. other STDs, you know that. So you still have to use common sense, but also it shows that things are evolving especially when it comes to uh, HIV and medical treatments that are on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But, yeah, definitely now, for young folks, keep on going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before, you know, we take our first break and, and, and go into about the Creole circle, I have to ask you. Okay, uh-huh. so in Naked, okay, I know I have oh, gotten yeah. up there and performed and done <laughs> some things that are really kind of personal. Okay. And I feel, <laughs> and, I, and, you know, and how you, you have that moment of feeling like really vulnerability but you you got naked. <laughs> okay. How did, how, how, did, how did you determine that, that you wanted to, to do that and that you felt it was important that you got that? And how did you get prepared that first time to get naked? Wow, you know, that is so true. I, you know, I, it, was, um, it was definitely a risk, but also it was, a, it was a F you to the world mm, mm. Um, because in – in the play naked, which is on YouTube, you can see the full video. <laughs> um, in the in the video, um, you see me. I'm revealing so much personal stuff, you know, stuff that I went to uh, with family, uh, stuff circle around identity, stuff with relationships. And I think when I got naked, it was not only a fu to, you know, not the world. But, but I wrote Naked during a time when I was dealing with uh, rejection of family. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, my mother, you know, wasn't speaking to me. My my siblings who I grew up, they wasn't speaking to me. They were speaking to themselves. They created another family. They created their own family and kind of mm. kicked me out. So mm-hmm. I was feeling like, you know, I was just out there in the world. It was just me by myself. And so it was like, you know what, I'm going to just do it because – in my mind, you know, once you, I've always, you know, once you lose your mother, mm-hmm. you know, nothing else matters, so you don't care about anything else. So I think that it was my fu moment where it's like, you know what, I lost family, so here we go. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I don't care, you know. But in doing so, it kind of then also I personalized it where I I even though I, I, I said it was F you, but even by doing it, by getting vulnerable, I found my strength by getting vulnerable 
you know, it was so it was the weirdest thing. Um, I'll never forget the first time I took off my clothes because I was doing it during rehearsals, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, and that was just me and the director, so I didn't have that test audience. But the first time I did it from a live audience, I'll never forget. My heart was beating, and um, you know, my you know, I, I don't think I was sweating, but. I, I don't remember looking at the audience. I just looked straight ahead. And when I took off uh-huh. those clothes and I put myself out there like that, you know, it, 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 and knowing that I've been through all this stuff all this other time, this was kind of like my moment where I was like, you know what? I'm no longer this victim. I'm now Andre. And here mm-hmm. I am. If you don't like me, then F you. Uh-huh. Wow. So, yeah. So that was me. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's funny, you know, that, that you took me there because I know because, mm-hmm. like, you know, Thanksgiving just passed. Yeah. And I was telling someone how, you know, we hear people talk about how sad it is. And I know what you mean when you have your family, yeah. how they have created family, and, and there's no place for you there. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that grief and sadness and pain that you feel. And I was telling them how, I had to found this chosen family. And in yep. some way it was liberating because I no longer had to, I mean, because it got down towards the end to where like with Thanksgiving, I said, okay, I've got an hour yep. to get there, eat and hurry yep. up and get out before, before the stones and arrows start at it. And to where yep. it, was, it got to be like so traumatic. And in, and in some way by that systematically cutting me out and, and making me feel that kind of, but I just found a chosen family to where now it's different. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, I've reclaimed yeah. a part of of my life and reclaimed a family, even though it's a chosen family. It, you can get that, and it's not biological. After yeah. you, you you did this, like, and, and put it all out there, literally. <laughs> After you okay. put it all out there. Okay. Did you, did you find that your, your chosen family – really shown and you felt the love? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, if it wasn't for the chosen family, I think, you know, it probably would have been only one performance of Naked. I'd be like, oh, what uh-huh. am I? it's like I lost my mind. What am I doing? But it was. It was my chosen family who kept me going throughout the process, you know, who I could share, you know, all my ups and downs of while I was putting this piece together and, you know, who could celebrate me. So when I finally did do it and when, when I finally did walk off the stage, you know, they can, you know, you know, be there with me for such a happy moment of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, there's still that sadness because you look at that empty space. But I think, if anything, what I've learned about rejection, um, you know, first of all, re- especially when you're HIV positive, rejection is a big part of, unfortunately, the... The, the the disease itself, you know, you you deal with people who will not ever want to deal with you. But I always say to my, I didn't. I always said to myself that when somebody rejects you, whether it's family, friends, whatever, they actually did you a favor. What they did was they made space for somebody who loves you to come in. So you yeah. know, yeah, and so that's mm-hmm. who definitely came in for me was the chosen family. Yeah. That is so beautiful. Okay, and and you know, and like I said, you got me right with that one because when as you said that, 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I have been trying to articulate that, like, throughout this sort of holiday, like, and how I was feeling, and, yeah. you know, and, and in fact, I had just had a conversation this morning about, you know, about the, the importance of chosen family, and, you know, and, yeah. I, and I'm happy for people who have a, a family who are welcoming and loving, but just how I grew because yeah. of my chosen family. Oh, yeah. So, Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. I mean, it's you know, you you still get angry. You know, you still have mm-hmm. reflection in the moments, uh, you know, of and reminders. But then, you know, sometimes what, for me, I learned to, to that my anger, that anger is my fuel for me to do greater. Mm-hmm. And you know, so you know, so again, they did me a favor. <laughs> they didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. They put fuel in my tank. All right. As they say, amen to that. No. Amen to that. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Well, I'm go- we're going to take our first break here on collections. And okay. uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about your work with the community, particularly for with um, the Griot Circle. So we will be right back. All right. Thank you. And welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. If you're just joining us today, I'm speaking with the Deputy Director for Griot Circle, Andre Guess. You know, Andre, you went to NYU. I mean, and how great that you, you know what you got your degrees and you were able then to take it and put it into working with the community but on things that you were passionate about. And I know mm-hmm. that you've worked with, I mean, I because mean, often we also know that there in the Haitian community, there's a need to have that focus on HIV, um, and you did that. Yeah. Um, you you were you were on the uh, the grant review committee of Philantro, and then you you took all of that and you continued to work and use the skills and things that you had that landed you with the Griot Circle. When you started when you started out on your career, after you got your degrees, you know and um, my son went to NYU for for a minute for his PhD. Oh, how, you know, when you when you got your degrees, what had been, what had you seen as your career path? Had you seen your life experience that eventually you would be working in that field? No, you know, it was, you know, it was me first of all floundering, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I even, I mean. Even back to when I did start going to college, exploring college, um, I actually started out at a community college uh, right when I got out of high school. Um, but then I came from a family where, unfortunately, and I don't want to say it's just black families that do this, but mm-hmm. in my experience, black families sometimes do this, where sometimes by doing good is seen as, as a negative. Mm-hmm. So for so not so the fact that I was you know speaking proper and getting A's and stuff, mm-hmm. I was always seen as oh you think you're better than everybody, you know. So that discouraged me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that discouragement caused me to drop out of community college because I thought that maybe wow, maybe I am trying to be something that I'm not. Uh, but then it wasn't until I was an older adult that you know when I was you know finding my way that. I had to block out those voices, but then also I wanted I always had an attachment to uh first of all media and you know especially you know through but looking at media through a different lens, looking at mm-hmm. you know finding those little nuances 
you know, finding things that, well, you know, well, why is that black person standing back there while that white person is up there? And, and finding those little things that no, most normal people wouldn't look at. But, you know, um, so that was something that interested me. And so that was my first degree. And then, um, you know, as I was going forward, I've always been, I love writing and I love even the business side of writing. So that, um, you know, helped me, you know, real easily fall into the communication aspect of it. Um, it's still unrelated to, well, no, it's not unrelated, but even as a deputy director, I still have elements of communication where I'm in charge of the the majority of the communication that comes out. But mm -hmm. in that role, it definitely has helped me um, learn how to communicate. And if anything, especially with Grill Circle, is tell our story. You know, mm -hmm. So that's definitely, um, yeah. So that's how I found my way to that journey. I, it wasn't planned, you know, because usually as a young person, you say, oh, I'm going to be this and this and this. Mm -hmm. Life comes along and says, no, you realize that God had different plans for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think for me, that road that I'm on is the one that God has picked for me. Mm -hmm. Now, I like one of the things that you were talking about, how um, when you were the communication director at GMAD, mm -hmm. you, you helped institute social media communication strategies. And yeah. often, you know, okay, it's a generational bias. People yep. sort of want to allocate that to, like, the very young or, or, or think that, you know, that there's no place for, for those of us with our AARP card other yep. than, you know, you know um, how, do you, how did you see that? I mean, and how do you continue to use social media? And is it as important when you're working with elders? Yeah, you know, it is. It's real important. And, you know, the main thing, especially you no, know, especially working with nonprofits, I think if anything, one of the things that a lot of nonprofits fail to do, which has such a great impact, is tell the story. And by telling mm. their story, they can create their identity. They can then also create more awareness, which leads to more funding, and you know, you know, and more people invested, you know, in them. Um, so for Grill Circle, that was um, my goal was to raise profile. When I started at Grill Circle, there was no Facebook page. There was no mm -hmm. social media platforms. Um, I think most of the communication was through mailing. And what people don't realize is that they people have a stereotype about older adults. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, older adults are on smartphones <laughs> They are mm -hmm. on Facebook. Yes, they, they are. are. They are following social media, you know. They, so I, and so there's this underservice where people think, well, why are you doing this when older adults? But it's, that's not true. Older adults are on these platforms. And, you know, in fact, if anything, Facebook, a lot of the young folks have jumped off of Facebook. And the older mm -hmm. adults have jumped onto Facebook because it, it's their kind of their access to information. But in general, um, you know, social media platforms how allowed us, especially at Grill Circle, was to tell our story and to say, hey, um, not only are we an older LGBT organization, but we don't do bingo. Hey, <laughs> Me hey. <laughs> Meaning, you know, 
we're not an organization where you come and you get a bingo card, but you're, we are an organization where you come and you get a full platform of wellness programs and leadership opportunities. Mm-hmm. But yeah. You know what? I mean, and I think that that's felt, like you said, that, that we do, you know, we are on it and we're looking at and to see these because, you know, I had talked to um, Dr. Imani Woody, who's doing Mary's House down oh, yeah. there. In, um, yeah. And she was talking about how, one of the things that happens sometimes is that social isolation that yep. particularly LGBTQ old elders have. But to be able to see yourself, even if it's yep. through social media, you see yourself, someone in your age group, someone even older, doing and living and doing that can be a tool to help you come out of it, that, that oh, self-isolation. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and he's, yeah, when you start to see people that look like you, you like to say, well, "Hey, wait a minute," you know, because even if you, I think that's the unique thing about Grill Circle is that, you know, it's it was built as an LGBT um, um, place for uh, people of color seniors, although we're open to everybody. Uh-huh. But what people saw was that you know, hey, there's a center that's not only. Um, a senior center, but also LGBT, but hey, it's also people of color, mm-hmm. which is real important because there are other senior centers where those who are LGBT don't feel like they fit in, so they don't go to them, they don't access them. And then there's also LGBT senior organizations, but they're not of color, where they still don't feel like they belong, they don't feel like they fit in. So it's real, it's, it's empowering to especially for Grill Circle, to show those images of people that look like them, that are LGBT, you know, and it's affirming and it's open, um, and that they're doing things, you know, that they're not just, you know, sitting down with a bingo car, but they're, like, doing Tai Chi, they're, they're speaking at conferences, they're, like, you know, doing self-defense classes, you know, mm-hmm. they're active, you know. So and, you know, and I think that's, that's so important, that part also how you said how even though there are centers, there are yep. still places where you go, and yes, you're black, but you don't see yourself. And oh, yeah. they might they might say that they're affirming, but yep. if you're going to be the first one going like, hey, I went out with my girlfriend last night, or I'm looking for a girlfriend, everybody's going to like sort of draw back, even though okay. in their mm. mission statement they may mm. be affirming, you know. Mm. But what happens in reality isn't there. Yep. Now, the people who founded, I mean, what, what, I know that that's what they were looking at and they were doing it. How did it go from being like an informal gathering to being this organization, which is the only organization exclusively dedicated to serving the needs of LGBT, LGBTQ people of color? And how, do, okay, first of all, let's do that part first. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you know, it, I, it was started by Regina Shavers and others, you know, and mm-hmm. almost like a lot of nonprofits where there you see a need, and but you also see that you don't have no money. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so you you meet in your living room, you meet you know in a, a community room or space, but then also what Regina did, you know, recognizing that need, recognizing that there was not a place for affirming LGBT people of color places. You know, it. she, you know, built it with the community and the community in mind. And, you know, the great thing about her was that she also 
you know, in building it for the community, it was also the involvement of community, you know, and not just, hey, this is my thing and this is how I want it. And I, I also really respect what she did because often when you talk about LGBT, you know, we segregate ourselves where it's either, you know, all men or all women. But her vision mm-hmm. was a place for all men and women, you know. Um, and I know it would have been transgender as well, even though, you know, back then transgender wasn't talked about as much. But even today, you know, we, real circle, has kept that dream alive by having a place where not only men or women, but even within this last year, the transgender community at Griot uh, Circle has grown because they see it as a safe and affirming place. They mm-hmm. see it as a continuation of Regina Shaver's uh, dream of having a, you know, a place where I can be me. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it was through those efforts, you know, so, you know, sometimes when they would have events way back in the day, you know, that's when, you know, people would, like, you, know, you pass around the jar, everybody donate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then all of a sudden you, everybody had a bowling trip or a cruise ship. But it was people giving them themselves financially also that had a big impact. And when other outside entities such as funders see that, and they see that, you know, hey, this is something that's still going on and, you know, and nobody's funding this. Wait a minute, let me help out. And usually it's that first grant, that first funding that makes a dream, you know, legitimate, uh, even though we knew it was legitimate from the beginning. And that set the door for, you know, Creole Circle to be on this path to be a, a full-fledged, you know, um, center where now, 22 years later, I know Regina will be so proud to see her dream, you know, grown into what it looks like today. And knowing that it's, yep. So it's a, now, it's an organization for people of color. Okay, and we know, I mean, and there's that part, how did it evolve or how does it balance that? Because sometimes people who are black, Okay, oh, yeah. we get, you know, we, we end up, then we become people of color, but we're still black. But also yep. there's a need to recognize that people who are black, Asian, Latino, I mean, that, that there's a way that we are separated from the non-person of color community yep. to where there's a special need for that. How do you balance that? How did you have that conversation or deal with when, you know, who gets, who gets, how do you make it inclusive of all people yep. of color without forgetting about the specific needs that as black people or even Latino yep. people or people from yep. across the diaspora, their needs are, aren't forgotten? Yeah. No, it is. It's been a, you know, it's been a real delicate balance. I know for ourselves, I mean, I could definitely speak about my tenure there was we um, have always, you know, made it known that although we're LGBT people of color space, all are welcome. So that Mm -hmm. means, you know, even if you're, you know, Latino, um, in fact, we have Latino there, but no matter what your background is, it's a place where everybody is uh, welcome. But knowing that our mission, our platform, is, you know, uh, 
African-American spirit um, speaking on the fact that as African-Americans, we have different issues around uh, racism and and inequality, um, you know, justice, uh, um, where it's not in our favor. Our platform are, are those isms. And no matter how you relate, those will always be there. You know, and I think in a lot of aspects, a lot of people, no matter what, regardless of your race, they can relate to some of those those isms because they encounter it in their own lives. Um, <clears throat> through that, though, we've had, you know, made it a, a delicate balance of, you know, having our instructors because we provide programming Monday through Friday, um, and from nine to five, we you know we have different classes every day. Even through that, it's been real intentional to even have the instructors be either look like or be like the people that we're servicing. So we have a lot of older adults who are teaching, um, and also older adults who are people of color. Mm-hmm. So it's affirming that they see these different faces that looks like them, um, but then also by keeping a welcoming door, we have to be real careful not to turn away our allies or those who mm-hmm. don't look like us, mm-hmm. but they still are aware of our cause. So through that, even today, <clears throat> although we're largely African-American, uh, we have some who come from Asian-American background, uh, Latino background, um, white. Um, so it's, it's still a real diverse place, but as diverse as it is, everybody there knows it's built on the platform of African-American traditions, and that will always be the same regardless. Mm-hmm. Now, do you find that you, being you, and having traversed this as being black, gay, male, HIV positive in this world, being the young black guy who wondered, were you not being true your, to your blackness because you were achieving good grades. Do you find that all of these life experiences helps you in your role as deputy director to sort of say, okay, how do I balance this? Let me look at what's missing, what needs to come together to make this a more enriching experience for those who come for our services? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, if anything, what I've learned real early is – understanding and recognizing that we all have stories, all our stories, no matter what, you know, even if we're black, you know, if another black person, their story is going to be, you know, similar to mine, but with a lot of differences, but it's embracing those stories and including those stories. And if anything, that's in fact, let me go back to that word, include them, because mm-hmm. you can embrace them. I mean, you can hear about them, you can and listen to them. But I think for us, for me, it was including those stories within our programming that made the difference. So um, as, a, as a deputy director, from day one, not only was it an open-door policy, but, I mean, I would will, I will listen to the stories of our members. You know, it, it might be a casual conversation where they say, you know, hey, I wish we had Tai Chi in here or something like that. You know, we should do something like that. And they may say it casually, but by listening to it and remember it, I can then say, hey, you know what? 
they just said something, you know, let me see if I can find something that we can Tai Chi. And sure enough, you know, mm. so that's how we got, in fact, a lot of our programming um, on the calendar, if you look at a grill circle calendar, I would say about 70% of it is member suggested. And it's stuff, it's, it's, and those, it's, it was suggested through listening to members. You know, it wasn't necessarily sitting them down and having a focus group and said, hey, tell me what you want. Uh-huh. But it was, it could have been through a casual conversation while riding up an elevator, you know, a casual conversation while, you know, um, seeing how their day was. And, and But by listening to our stories, you can really make, you can make, you can definitely create greater inclusion. Mm-hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. what I set up to do, um, definitely mm-hmm. as a deputy director. Mm-hmm. So uh, as the deputy director, you know, uh, it, you were saying that you help develop and guide wellness programs. Mm-hmm. Did you, do you sometimes, do you think about, oh, do you look at your life and say, well, what's in there for, you know, what am I looking for? What do I want to to have in my life at this point to help me live more authentically and then try to see that in the, in, in these stories that you're hearing in people, in the community as you walk through and you see, you know, people who are elders who are living in their community and sort of like, well, this is what I'd like in my life or this is what yeah. I'm doing in my life and how can this, how can I put, make an atmosphere where others can achieve this. Yeah, you know, I do. I, I, re- I set out to do that by, um, you know, looking at what, how would I experience this? You know, so, you know, various centers have nutrition programs where somebody will come up and talk about nutrition. You know, they'll talk about, you know, you should eat it, you know, organic and all this stuff. But for me, I always, I do look at it at my lens. It's like, but wait a minute. I live in Harlem. I live, you know, not in the hood, but, you know, I know Uh a lot of the seniors, you know, even if they did have a whole food in their neighborhoods, they couldn't afford to go get them. So how can they eat? So how can we eat healthy at the bodega around our corners, you know? Uh And so by doing that, we had uh, nutrition programs where they did come in and talk about, you know, how to eat healthy with what you have in your neighborhood, if that was bodegas per se or whatever, recognize that people have limited incomes. And it was also for me, you know, you know, when we have opportunities to bring people to speak in on topical issues, I, I recognize that topical issues for a lot of seniors, you know, and this is some of my stuff, but by bringing my stuff, I realized that, yeah, people like to talk about this. So, for example, we had a dialogue about Black Lives Matter, and mm-hmm. we did a community engagement talk where not only was it Black Lives Matter, but does Black Lives Matter when it's somebody who's gay? Mm-hmm. You know, or is it only when somebody, you know, um, straight a straight black male gets killed? But if if I'm a transgender, does my Black Lives Matter, and are we going to protest? And mm. if I'm a or older adult, will we protest? So we bring in those conversations. Um, we also the one thing that we're talking about now, and, rec- and one thing that we're recognizing is gentrification that a lot mm-hmm. of our older adults are experiencing displacement. 
and through that displacement, what did the, the world look like? And, you know, what are the conversations they're having? And are they having those conversations? Are, ple- are places creating those conversations? And um, so what I intentionally have done, especially at Grio, is create those platforms because I, I have those conversations myself. And so I think it's, you know, so it's me putting myself a little bit out in there, but then also recognizing mm-hmm. that other people, they wanted to have the same type of conversations, but creating that platform for them to do it, you know, so that, you know, because it's not a, and I, I won't lie, I look at other senior center calendars, and you don't see that a lot, but for us, uh, that's something that's definitely normal. You'll see places where we can talk about what's really going on in our lives, not only just around agent, but also around, about, you know, racism, and around our mm-hmm. color and the sexuality. You know, it was funny. We had a uh, Queering Racial Justice um, Day. where They had a program. It was a day here. And I would just happen to be talking with people, you know, just, you know, talking. And, and through these conversations that I have with others and people who are at different points. And one of the things that I've heard from some of the people that I've interviewed and from what I came there came about that where it was like, I never, I have people say, basically, I never thought I would get to be this mm. old. And mm. I'm wondering if there will yeah. be enough money there for me. And recognizing mm. how, like if they'd been in a partnership, how all those years that they couldn't get married, so they weren't able to get the benefits and things like that, or maybe that they yeah. had planned. I know someone who lives in Harlem who talked about with the gentrification and taxes and things going up, yeah. would they be able to stay there? And yeah. that that level of economic insecurity that yeah. comes not only from being a person of color, but particularly from being gay. And mm. it's not a, And they said, you know, often there's not spaces where we can talk about that. Do yeah. you hear these conversations and do you hear this concern? Oh, yeah, and that's why... We, you know, we make, you know, the obviously we have a lot of focus around gentrification and income equality. Um, that's one of our, I would say, one of our top kind of concern and discussion. We mm-hmm. offer case management services and of case management that is the top reason for, you know, services where people are being harassed by landlords, uh, being forced out of their buildings, right. so we we do we um you know we but also what we do um, is not only just talk about it. Um, like for instance, we're starting a, a political activist program where we're going to um, start in January. We're going to start teaching seniors how to be part of that process, how to be at the table, starting with uh, your community group. You know, um, if you notice, yeah, and I, you know, I have, I have to give, you know, people who move into new neighborhoods credit, you know, especially if it's white, the first thing they do is join the community boards or the mm-hmm. community groups because they know that those who are at the table get things done. So I think, if mm-hmm. anything, that's what we're doing now is showing that we can talk about this but also we can do something about this. And so this political uh, program that we're doing will 
literally we'll first talk about, you know, how things work, but then also we'll go to, like, community board meetings so that they know what it looks like, you know, what one, how, so they can experience it. So then also then within their own neighborhood, they can also then do the same thing, as well as we'll, there's an aspect of it um, circling around voting so that now we're cultivating people for the 2020 so that they can mm. now realize that, hey, this is a process and this is why you should be involved of it. Instead of, you know, because, again, we could talk about gentrification, we could talk about inequality, we can talk about things going on in the neighborhood, but, you know, if we're not, you know, providing those those important tools of engagement and showing how to be engaged, it'll just be nothing but talk, but by you know, having our seniors be part of this process, they can now be that change that they want within, you know, their community. Are there coalitions? Because I'm going to tell you, a lot of the, are these problems, you know, the people who are suffering from income inequality and, and housing issues, there's this, there's this in the middle, but then there's this, there are some things that affect particularly LGBTQ youth and LGBTQ yeah. elders where, are there ways that they can work together? And also, you know, if you don't know your history, you're mm. destined to commit the same mistakes yeah. that, that we can, but also our elders can learn about some of these new ways that young people are doing. And to, to blend that, to have this like intergenerational conversation, problem solving, uh, yeah. activism. Oh yeah. In fact, uh when I mentioned our uh, Black Lives Matter, that was, you know, kind of a, a, a intergenerational discussion that was so pivotal because it brought together, what we did was we brought together um, young activists who were on the front line currently, you know, out there protesting. And then we also then brought together um, activists who were out there during the the, the I say late seventies or the early seventies eighties, mm-hmm. who were protesting, <clears throat> and then even the audience itself was intergenerational, and it was mm-hmm. good because it was a, a chance for even us as older adults to listen to what the young people are going through, and I emphasize that because sometimes you know when you do intergenerational programs. It's we expect the young people to listen to the elders and hear about their experiences so that they can learn. But we can still even learn a lot from the young people themselves, you know, some some things, and they can empower us to continue on, whereas we Mm -hmm. can empower them to continue on as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously a lot of our programs are built around um, an intergenerational aspect. We've had structured programs. Um, one I can think of was this year was Honor Our LGBT Elders. Mm-hmm. And it was a program where we worked with a, a youth group and they came in. And although it was honoring LGBT Edwards, it was also how can we honor the young people and how can we still have these conversations so that we can still be the teachers but also we can help the young people be the teachers themselves. So it's not them just listening to us. Mm-hmm. And it's been, yeah, so it's been a cornerstone of who we are. There's some great organizations that we've been working with, Audrey Laura Project. Um, mm-hmm. 
we started a conversation with Hedrick Martin, um, Brooklyn Community Prize Center, where they have those groups out there who are looking, you know, they want to form these relationships with older adults. Um, the last thing we did was a <clears throat> Sage Table, which was designed to build older and younger and have them come for a simple meal. And during those conversations, talk about what's going on, you know, using food as that kind of the middle ground. Mm-hmm. And as you know, you know, if you ever want anybody to start talking, just start giving some food. We'll start Give talking. them some food. and then, and Okay. And, mm-hmm. Well, Andre, we're going to take our second break here. And then when we come back, I want to find out a little bit more about your working with SAGE and then what's next for you and the Griot Circle. So we will be right back. All right. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And we're back here with Andre Guess. Andre, you know, I know that Griot Circle has been working with, uh, you've worked as a site manager for a partnership between Griot Circle and Sage USA. What does that partnership look like? And how important is it that Griot Circle has that voice and is, and I would say, making Sage better yeah. at addressing issues? Yeah, um, so what happened was that the City Council of New York, they wanted to make sure that there was LGBT um, older adult center in all the five boroughs. Uh, so this was money um, through the city council, and um, they had kind of sage be like the the bank, as you will. Mm-hmm. But then uh, Queens, you know, they they went on their own and said, hey, you know, we like this idea, um, but we want to manage our own in Queens, and we don't want you know sage as the bank. Uh, Grill Circle was going through a transition at that time of leadership. So, you know, in hindsight, it would have been nice for us to say the same thing, but with the transition, it was easier for us, you know, to go into a, a partnership with Sage where they would um, dispense inc- our funding for these LGBT center in Brooklyn, Harlem, mm-hmm. Staten Island, and in the Bronx. What it the funding allowed it, us to do was expand our programming and really sharpen the focus around wellness and technology um, and also uh, provide a congregate lunch program, whereas mm. every day, you know, the uh, seniors got a, a, a hot meal um, where it was either vegetarian or, or meat. Uh, and with the different standards. So that the partnership has worked us, for us in that aspect of kind of making us not stability, because we always had that stableness, but it, it kind of raised the profile. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been beneficial, but also, of course, there's always some challenges. Um, but challenges and something that, you know, SAGE itself is working through, um, especially when it comes around diversity and inclusion of uh, people of color voices. And I would say that by having Griot Circle be part of that partnership, you know, we've 
kind of forced them to have these conversations and forced them to look at what does it mean to be diverse, not only um, with your membership, but also, also with your staff, mm-hmm. you know, and how can that, you know, and what does that look like, you know, recognizing that sometimes you have certain white organizations say, hey, we're diverse, <clears throat> And you recognize that they're diverse on their program. Are there uh, flyers? Are there uh, booklets? But then you look at the upper management, it's not diverse. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, those are the kind of conversations that uh, Real Circle has been part of, but also has, you know, made it known, you know, we, you know, we celebrate diversity and we also expect it in other places. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think especially as you think about diversity, you know, and I think about what you're talking about and what you're doing is, you know, for many of us, it is hard to ask for help. It is also mm. hard to recognize that sometimes you need help, and it's oh, yeah. easier for me to go to someone who looks like me and to do it. And I know mm. you and I had a conversation when we were talking about um, a mutual friend of us who had passed on who was losing his vision, and you said oh, yeah. how sometimes you would walk with him a certain way just to make sure because it's hard sometimes to sort of say, I need help. Oh, yeah. I'm not oh, that yeah. person. And yep. it sounds, you know, but this is what Griot Circle does. And I think it's like you said, sometimes you might have great administrators who have great intentions, who like with an organization like Sage, but if you – if I, as a person who might need some help or need someone to have a program to where I can come in, and you say, like, you know, hey, Michelle, you know, you might benefit from doing Tai Chi. It might help you in your mobility. That if I don't come in that door, if I don't come yeah. to that program, then your best intentions and your best marketing and your best programming oh, yeah. is for not. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. And even for us, I mean, we recognize that because that is – we recognize that – that also, you know, as much as we want to be, keep our ears open, you know, and be there for some, you know, a lot of our members that we can't. And, um, you know, so through that, we have a program called Buddy to Buddy. And Buddy to Buddy is a a, a matching program where two similar um, seniors with the same interests, they support each other. Uh, support can look like going to you know, going with your buddy to their doctor visit, going to your buddy to the grocery store, uh, going to your buddy to Acrio, joining programs, or even the most simplest thing which we take for granted is, you know, here we are in New York City with all these cultural institutions and all the stuff to do where people from around the world come. But, you know, often seniors, especially LGBT, is we don't want to go to those places by ourselves. So those things that are out there, are not taken advantage of, but with a buddy, now you're willing to go there because you have somebody, you know, who's of similar interest, who is, you know, willing to be there for you. Mm-hmm. And it's through that buddy to buddy that we're able to then also hear, you know, if somebody is struggling or somebody's having concerns that we're not aware of, where now we have, you know, we now they have an additional voice, you know, to, um, share with, and sometimes then those voices often, you know, come back to us and say, "Hey, so and so may need help." 
we let them know from the beginning that that's the intention so that they don't feel like they're being, you know, um, they're having their, their stuff put out there. Mm-hmm. But it it, um, it it creates a great, but it does create a greater sounding board for what our members are going through and what they're experiencing. You know, you have brought a lot of your storyteller background comes through everything that you do. And one of the things that we that I'd like to talk about is what I think is really cool is that you you help create and design still standing okay. and a similar program, Joy of Intimacy, both yeah. of which talk about older adults living with HIV. And the other one is from the perspective of older female adults. And like you said, we're living longer. You know, I know that yeah. I was at Creating Change in uh, – when it was in Chicago, and Phil Wilson was on the stage, and he was talking about, hey, I'm getting ready to be, I'm approaching 60, and I never thought I'd be here this long. And Mm. how did both of these programs, I mean, I think it's great that they do, but how do, what do they look like? How are they, and how have they been received? Yeah, no, it was a great opportunity to uh, help create this, you know, beautiful program. Um, what the goal of it was recognizing that nobody was talking to the seniors about sex in general. Mm. You know, everybody assumes that once you hit 60, you, you're not having sex, but, you know, that you put it away in a drawer and everything. And <laughs> about your business. Mm-hmm. But we knew by listening to our, even our constituents, in fact, one one of our members told me, she said, I'll probably have more sex than you. <laughs> You know, she was like 70 years old, Uh you know, saying like, shoot, I got more free time. What do you think I'm doing? I'm not playing bingo all the time. I was like, okay. All right. right. (laughs) So it was, so it was that awareness, but also it was awareness if, you know, looking at HIV that with these, with the seniors still sexually engaged. And as we talked about before, HIV focused so much on youth that this was a population that was being ignored. Um, they were not being provided the tools. They were not being provided the conversations. You know, recognizing that a lot of seniors, when they went in to go see the primary for their, you know, annual checkup, that the doctor was asking everything else but, hey, are you having sex? Hmm. And by doing that, what the doctor could do was check in on their sexual health as well as provide tools for prevention. But, you know, seniors wasn't given assets to them, you know, and we've talked before about, you know, how seniors can, LGBT seniors can relate to people that look like them. When it comes to a lot of HIV messaging, they don't, there's nobody that looks like them, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody's young and climbing mountains and everything. Uh, but, so with this program, we had three gentlemen um, who were in our HIV men's group who were willing to you know, put themselves out there and tell their stories. And you're right about the storytelling aspect of it is because I know from from the beginning I wanted to use their stories because that would be the selling point. Instead of them going someplace and doing a PowerPoint or whatever, whatever, but by telling their stories of their lives, I kind of knew, and based on me doing the same thing, that there'd be a greater uh, attachment to those stories. And it's worked out perfectly because, you know, these three gentlemen, one is late 50s, the other two are in their 70s, 
both, you know, long-time HIV um, survivors, they go to senior centers, orga uh, other organization, youth-based organization, um, medical clinics, uh, been on conferences, and through telling a story, what they people do, what people get to experience is how it looks like to live with HIV as an older adult. For young people, they can see that, hey, there is hope for me. For those who are not, you know, HIV positive, they can say, hey, you know what? I, I Now I know if a friend ever came up to me as HIV positive, I know how I can be there. But even, even for older adults who are living with HIV, they can say, hey, you know what? It's not over for me. I can still stand. And so that was the whole intention of the program. Um, so the audiences itself is, you know, has been a real great experience because we literally just go to, you know, senior centers in the Bronx. Um, some of them are housed in the NYCHA buildings. So these are not people who identify as LGBT, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. uh, they identify as seniors, but you know, so there was kind of a nervousness of how would these, how would you know, people resign? You know, would they, would they, you know, would they hear the message, or would they be focused more on the guy's sexuality? You know, will it be a case of how did you get it? How did you get it? Or you know, our judgment. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, by telling their stories, the people in the audience, they over have been overlooking the fact that these are three gay men. And in fact, when we do the discussions, their sexuality never comes up. One guy mm -hmm. comes up and talks about him being married and having a kid and, you know, learn, <clears throat> you know, and learn about his status right when, um, after his wife passed, um, another talks about, you know, him learning that he had cancer living in, and he's living with HIV and he's, and he's dealing with other things that comes with aging and, you know, things that other people in the audience can relate to because they can relate to, hey, yeah, I got cancer. Or I'm dealing with this blood pressure, and I'm dealing with this also. And the last one was dealing with mental health and, you know, how that helped him. And so it's so they, they're able to hear those stories, and then also they're able to have those conversations and with the men. And... The joy of intimacy came along because we, you know, the we didn't know how still standing would work out. It was a pilot, but then we now, we, you know, with the success of it, we recognize that we needed a female aspect of it, you know, because we can talk about men, but also there's a female aspect of it that's way different from men. And so that's where the joy of intimacy came from. Where now it has that female voice, where it could talk about. HIV, but also from a, a female empowerment perspective. Um, and, you know, how can, and we'll, in each program, what we do is we provide tools on how seniors can talk to their doctors, um, how seniors can talk to potential partners about sex, and a reminder um, to seniors, and they'll, they'll finish the sand for us, um, which is, you know, if you, you know, if you ain't going to wrap it up, you ain't going to get none. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And they'll let us know. They're like, yeah. And, but it also what has happened is, you know, you hear these stories uh, about people in their 70s, 80s, and 
and literally, and when I say 80s, I'm literally, I'll never forget, there has been a couple episodes where 80s people are talking about, you know, their sexual position and how they like it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, and what they what they don't like as it relates to sex. And, and you can see they, this almost happiness of, hey, I'm talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the last thing was, you know, how do we provide condoms to our seniors? And, and it's, you know, it's been a great moment because even at a lot of the centers that we, you know, go to, by the time we finish, the center director, who is usually younger, they'll come and they say, wow, I didn't know this. And they'll share that they got condoms, but they keep them, you know, in a drawer and mm-hmm. they expect seniors to ask for it. Or they got mm. condoms and they don't put them out because they don't feel like, you know, that w- that would only encourage, you know, seniors to have sex. But by the time we leave, you see them putting those condoms out. In fact, I think this year we did like a, an evaluation. We, we we went back to at least 15 centers. I'll say of those 15 that we previously went to, um, 10 of them, had condoms on the front desk when you came in the door, whereas before they they never did have condoms there available. Hmm. Has it led to any conversations between with like those I I, I with this the, this children of because I can recall a friend of mine and she just her father got sick he went in the hospital and she went over and she was going to looking for something and she found some condoms in the sock drawer and she was oh, yeah. just like appalled that her father in his 80s were were doing you know was doing anything oh, you know, yeah. Say, yeah and and she was like she was going to go and talk to him about it and it was Good. like you know but then after a while she was like i wonder if i need to talk to him about you know, huh. hiv yeah. and aids and do yeah. that she said but i don't want to do that i mean yep. it has have any of these conversations led to to a better understanding that you know Okay, get over the E factor. Dad is still doing it. Mom is still doing it. Yep. And, oh, yeah. you know, and to, and to be able to have open conversations. Oh, yeah, definitely, especially because we do. We, we definitely have – there's a segment where it's specifically a conversation built around the condom, recognizing mm-hmm. um, what we do is uh, – well, first of all, we do a condom demonstration also, making sure you know how to put it on because there ain't no use having it if you, mm-hmm. you know, don't know how to put it on right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But also, um, <clears throat> what what we also do is with even with a female perspective as it relates to condom, is we empower females, older adults, you know, to have condom because we know that for a guy, <clears throat> if they have a condom, they're a stud. Mm-hmm. But, if a, if, but if a female has a condom, she must be loose. You know, mm-hmm. She must mm-hmm. be running the streets. You know, uh-huh. she must be that H word. Uh-huh. And we, so we reframe it and said, no, if a woman has a condom, she's smart and she's strong and she's intelligent. Yeah. Uh. So we want to, so it's real important that we would pray what that condom means. And also um, what we do is um, we, we talk, we, we're real, real oh my, my words, we're real honest about the condom and what it means within a relationship. And the fact that, you know, we, we talk about it, it's like, hey, if you got a sense that your person is stepping out, that you're, you know, the person you're with, 
you know, say, hey, I'm go- I'll am i be back in about an uh, hour to go get bread. And they come back three hours later and got <laughs> no bread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ain't got no bread. What does that mean? And how do you now introduce that conversation of, hey, you know, maybe we, we might look at condoms, you know, you know, until I'm, you know, until I'm certain that things, you know, you're not dipping out on me. But also mm-hmm. that's even a moment where we encourage couples to get tested together so that even then during those moments, you know, you're, you're talking about HIV and you talk about STDs. But you also, you know, what you want to do is, you know, find those ways of introducing the condom into your conversation, especially if you feel that one part is not being faithful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's real frank conversations that definitely mm-hmm. are surrounding the uh, condom usage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andre, we're coming close to the end of our time here. And what I'd like for, what would you say to, you know, there's the Griot Circle, and it's the only organization that's dedicated to this. But what would you say to communities of color across the country or from wherever they're listening that, they need to be thinking about as it relates to their elders. Yeah. You know what? I would say definitely, um, and especially for um, LGBT young organizations, that recognizing that your constituents, your membership is going to get older, and that if you really do, you know, affirm their lives, you can do that by also creating a space and a place for them as they age. And, um, you know, because we're all going to get up there, we're all going to age, we're all going to hit that space where we're going to try to ask ourselves, where do we fit in? And the best place they can fit in is where a place where they've been going all this time. Um, and getting older doesn't mean that it's over. In mm. fact, in a lot of cases, getting older means that it's just beginning. I love and that. So, so, yeah, just recognizing that that you know we let's create these homes and the, and let's create these community communities for older adults because um, we're still here and we're still standing. Mm. Well, Andre, I want to thank you for being with me today. I mean, this is this is just like so great, you know. Uh, we are all, all aging. I yeah. love the different chapters that you've had in your life and how they've all been interlinked. And, you know, a griot, it's also the griot circle, but a griot is also that person that that shares stories, yep. poetry, all that. And yep. you are a griot. <laughs> and the Thank work you. that you're doing, you know, whether on the stage, through writing, or just there, on your J-O-B, is really helping to bring our community together, but also, like you said, you know, how about our lives go on. After my grandmother, like, they would say, how come you're not sitting on the porch and doing that? And she'd say, well, I'm not dead yet. (laughs) And, you know, Mm, and, and and you are helping us as a community recognize not only the rich history that our elders bring to our community and have to make help us stand on their shoulders, but also that they're a valuable resource and still alive and, and kicking and, and bringing so much to it. I thank you yeah. for your work. Thank you, Michelle. I really appreciate you giving this platform 
And, um, well, and definitely appreciate you. Well, I will be in touch with you. You know, I get to New York from time to time, and I always say I'm going to be looking you up, and, but okay. I will. I will. And if you I, come, I'll show you, uh, you know, all my favorite places around Harlem, and, and you know, we have a good time. Well, I look forward to that. Andre, thank you again so much. All right. Have a good day, and, and really uh, take care. Thank you again. I want to thank today's guest, Andre Guest the Deputy Director for Griot Circle and the Site Manager for the partnership between Griot Circle and SAGE USA. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Be sure and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.